I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 3. That is a beautiful tune for the church's one foundation, isn't it? You know, sometimes it's just good to be reminded of um, who the church is and God's faithfulness and promises to the church and what a great, great hymn. As we uh, turn to God's word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, just a few minutes ago, we ordained and installed an elder and two deacons. What a joyful time in the life of the church. And so, again, there needs to be something appropriate said. And today uh, is going to be a how-to sermon. Every now and then it's necessary to have a how-to sermon or a series, you know, practical teaching for today's living, you know, how to have good relationships, how to not worry, how to be successful at work, etc., how to have your best life now, how to become a better you. Well, those of you that know me probably would not hear that. But today may be one of the most important how-tos in the life of a church, over the lifetime of a church, how to recognize elders and deacons, Uh, not recognize as in award, but rather recognize as in identify. Now, elders and deacons would not want to win an award for their labors, But they would want their office recognized and respected because they know that it's good for the church. Join with me as I read the end of 1 Timothy 3 because Paul is writing Timothy here and he's telling him why he is writing. So in verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." Did you hear those expressions that the church of the living God is the household of God? It is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Wow. Did you realize y'all were stepping into this gathered congregation of the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth? And of course, at the end, Those verses, we believe, is an early Christian hymn where it's looking at Jesus' incarnation, his life, his ministry, his resurrection, his, his ascension, and his promised return. Indeed, 
Paul is drawing attention even here to this, to the head of the church, the foundation of the church. Indeed, Jesus, he's the head, he's the ruler, he's the king of his church. Isaiah reminds us that the government is on his shoulders. Paul says it directly in Colossians 1, he's the head of the church. As Rob mentioned, elders aren't kings, deacons aren't kings. No, there's one king, Jesus. He's the boss. He's in charge. He makes the rules. He calls the shots. He rules as king. Yet Jesus describes himself in scripture as a shepherd and as a servant. As king, Jesus provides for his people shepherds and servants because together elders and deacons represent they represent the fullness of the ministry of Jesus in the church Jesus our shepherd you could go to John chapter 10 I am the good shepherd and there You've got also the person and work of the elder. And you could go to 1 Peter 5 where elders are told to shepherd the flock of God. We heard in Mark 10, Jesus saying, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the servant. If you turn over to Acts chapter 6, you will see the person and work of the deacon. Here's a contrast between the kingdom of God and the world. Think about it. Elders are shepherds. Deacons are table servants. What does the world then think about shepherds and servants? Not much. The world may not think much about shepherds and servants, but God's people do. They're good gifts for his church. We're going to have to talk a little bit about church government. It's not mundane and peripheral. It's important. It's central. It matters. I encourage you to read those two pages later today. It matters. It's important. Because the ministry of a church, what it does, and the government of a church, how it's led, cannot be separated. And since Jesus provides good gifts to his church, it's important for us to be able to recognize those gifts, those men who Jesus calls and equips to shepherd and serve the church. Now, how are people recognized these days? Almost every TV show that I watch that has to do with some sort of law enforcement, it's facial recognition, right? They've got computers and cameras and software that can recognize faces, right? It matches the face to a database. So people are recognized by their face. But I think overall, there's two basic ways people are recognized, by their walk, by their manner of life, and their talk, their words. You know, sometimes you're expecting to see someone and meet them, and you can see them way off in a distance. Why? You recognize their walk, right? We all have a distinctive walk. You can recognize someone by their walk, and you can also recognize someone by their talk, right? A few years ago, 
I get a call from a number that I didn't recognize. I answer it. It was an old Navy shipmate. He said three or four words, and I knew who it was. How? I recognized his talk, the way he talked, his accent. People are recognized by their manner of life, and they're recognized by their words. Join with me now as I read these words, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, our text presents a temptation, and that's that this is just a list just some sort of job description, an advertisement with a list of qualifications. It's tempting, but we're going to consider the text as a whole and consider briefly three qualities that, is, that emerge as themes. Elders and deacons are men who are dignified and above reproach, men who are devoted to the church, and thirdly, men who are humbled. First, men who are dignified and above reproach. Dignified. There's a gravity about them. Life is not trivial. Life is substantial. Above reproach. A blameless rep rep reputation both inside the church and interestingly outside the church as well. Now, being above reproach and blameless cannot mean sinless. Otherwise, John had, shouldn't have written 1 John, right? We often are reminded that we are still sinful. But it does mean without scandal, without a scandalous sin that would discredit the church. A man who is dignified and above reproach is a man who's both slow and quick, slow to sin, but when he does sin, and he will, and I will, quick to repent. This idea of dignified and above reproach is where 
public life and private life are pretty much the same. I'm reminded of what Will Rogers once said, that he was not afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Let that sink in for a moment as you think about what you are in private and what you are in public. Above reproach in three areas. It's not an exhaustive list, but it pictures a person with uh, mature or maturing Christian character toward his family. If he's married, a one-woman man. And if he has children, managing well. In other words, basically a faithful husband and father. He's above reproach toward himself. He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled. He's not a drunkard. He's not a lover of money. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. And he's also above reproach toward others. He's respectable. He's not quarrelsome. He's not violent. But he's gentle. Now these are all character qualities. Why is character important? Why does character count? Um, Why is character destiny? I I think we all know that, but it's worth being reminded. uh, Because people, what people do, always flows from who they are. Conduct is always guided and governed by character. So why is character important? To protect the church from scandal and therefore helping to preserve its witness to the world. My friends, this text is not a job description. Rather, it is a character description. It's not just the ends that are important. The means are important as well. So who are elders and deacons? They are dignified men whose character is above reproach, not sinless, but not scandalous. And and what do they do? Well, in a word, as shepherds and servants, they are devoted to the church. They care greatly about the church as an institution established by God, and they care greatly for the church, the people in the church. So secondly, elders and deacons are men who are devoted to the church. They care about the church and they care for the church. What is the church? Well, the nature of the ministry, of course, is determined by the nature of the church. Paul is writing to Timothy to establish order and outline conduct in the church And in verse 15, again, we heard that description that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. These are men in the church who care about the word of God. They care about sound doctrine where the truth can be promoted and protected. They're able to teach. Elders are. We see that in Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy. They are to hold to sound doctrine. Why? Because the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. Truth that's found in the church and sustained by the church. And deacons also hold the mystery of the faith, we read, with a clear conscience. They have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, 
sound theology, sound doctrine has as one of its many benefits assurance, quiet confidence. So elders and deacons care about the word of God. They also care for the people of God. Elders are hospitable. They practice hospitality, a love of strangers. We see Paul emphasize that in Romans. We see the author of the letter to the Hebrews emphasize that. Peter, in his letters, talks about hospitality. Elders are concerned about how people are to behave and conduct themselves in the church. Why? It's the body of Christ. It's the household of God. It's a pillar and buttress of the truth. Deacons care for the people of God. They lead the church in meeting people's physical needs. You see, God cares about body and soul. We've seen very quickly that elders and deacons are men whose overall character is blameless and whose overall conduct is one of devotion to care about and for the church. Well, what is at the root of such character and conduct? At the root, if you dig down deep, if you remove the dirt, if you see what's below the surface, what's at the root is humility. Elders and deacons are men who first and foremost are humble. What is humility? I think a great definition is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Humility is thus thinking more of God, believing what God says and trusting in who God is. Humility is not being unsure or uncertain or being wishy-washy. Humility is rather holding firm to what God has revealed in his word. And holding firm most often does not mean being loud. Holding firm can be done very quietly. Now, why is humility important and why is humility especially important for leaders of the church? Because when humility is absent, pride fills in the space. And that's dangerous. Paul even says it leads to condemnation. Humility is learned. It takes time and experience the experience often of being humbled, right? How do you and I learn humility? We are often humbled. Think of Paul, arrogant, sure of himself. Saul, the Pharisee, he meets Jesus. He is humbled. Think about Peter. I'll never deny you, Jesus. I will stick with you to the end. He denies Jesus. When he meets the resurrected Jesus and he's restored by the resurrected Jesus, he is humbled. And you can see Peter's humility in what he says in his letters. And so the leaders of the church are men who are mature in being teachable, in being eager to learn. I think a great way to think about humility is 
approachability and accountability. Leaders are to be approachable and accountable. You see, elders and deacons realize that in and of themselves, they are not sufficient, but their sufficiency is from Christ. And church, you should be really encouraged that if there's any refrain that has echoed from our session meetings and other times, it's we are not sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from Christ. Church, be encouraged that you've got men in positions who, of course, they sin, sometimes for a long time, but they are men who, as the Spirit of God is at work in their lives, they are teachable. They are eager to learn. They are eager to change. Oh, grace and peace. Be thankful that God is providing you men like this. So where can we find a good example of someone really humble? Jesus Christ himself. Jesus had authority, but he did not use his authority to advance his self-interest, but rather the interest of others. Paul writes about that in Philippians 2. Jesus was rich, but for the sake of his people, he became poor. Jesus was absolutely unwavering to the, in the truth, and he was humble. What a combination. He did his father's will. So elders and deacons are recognized by their walk, their manner of life, and their talk, their doctrine. Because character speaks loud and clear. Character speaks loud and clear. So as we roll toward a conclusion, I think there's three things that we need to remember that will aid us in our ongoing recognition of elders and deacons. Elders and deacons are men whose lives are shaped by the gospel. You see, the gospel of grace constrains obedience out of gratitude. We don't obey in order to be accepted. We are accepted by faith in Jesus. And from that acceptance, from that place of security, then we obey. Elders and deacons are men whose lives are shaped by this good news. So ask yourself, is my life being shaped by this good news of guilt, of grace, and gratitude? Is my life being shaped of who Jesus is and what he has done for his people? Elders and deacons are not only men whose lives are shaped by the gospel, but they are men who lead the church in repentance and faith. Elders and deacons are men who lead the church in repentance and faith. They are leaders because they are followers of Jesus. They lead because they follow. There's a lot of books written about leadership, right? Right? 
How many books lately have you read about followership? See, a leader in the church is primarily a follower of Jesus. And like Paul, they say, come on, follow us as we follow Jesus. Because somebody's got to be out front. Somebody's got to be out front. Follow us as we follow Christ, they say. They follow Jesus because they hear him proclaiming the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Elders and deacons lead the church in repentance and faith. Uh, Years ago, uh, at a church planting conference in London, the late Tim Keller, in a speech entitled, What the Church Needs Most in a Leader, said this, My dear friends, most churches make the mistake of selecting as leaders the confident, the competent, and the successful. But what you most need in a leader is someone who has been broken by the knowledge of his sin and even greater knowledge of Jesus' costly grace. The number one leaders in every church ought to be the men who repent the most fully without excuses because you don't need any now. The most easily without bitterness, the most publicly and the most joyfully, they know their standing isn't based on their performance. In that sense, we all need to be leaders in the church. Elders and deacons are to be the first, the first to encourage, the first to ask for forgiveness, the first to sound the alarm to protect the church. So is your life marked by that ongoing rhythm of repentance and faith? Elders and deacons, finally, are men who represent, who represent Jesus Christ in the fullness of his ministry to the church. In other words, they are men who together look an awful lot like Jesus, both in his rule and in his service. Shepherds and servants say to the church, follow us. As we follow Christ. And my friends, there is no better place on earth to be than following Jesus with others on the road that leads to eternal and everlasting life. There really is no better place to be than on the road that leads to heaven. Continue to pray, my friends, that as a church we would recognize these men whom God has called and is calling to lead and serve and that we would recognize their office because they indeed are good gifts that God provides for his pilgrim people, shepherds and servants, calling the church to follow Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you indeed cherish the church and you are with us to the end. Father, we thank you that 
in the midst of turmoil and tribulation, you are with your people, that one day the church militant here on earth will be the church triumphant. One day we will see in full what we have just now only seen in part. Oh, Father, we give you thanks and praise for how you have established this church and how you are even this day providing what we need to continue to worship you, to welcome one another, to work together, and to be a witness of the good news of Jesus before a watching world. Father, be pleased to strengthen and encourage your beloved people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, by singing.